At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Drug Science Podcast. It's me, Hannah Thurger and Joe Neal hosting the podcast today. We have a fantastic guest lined up. It's the man behind Psychedelic Alpha, Josh Hardman. Since meeting him a few months ago, I wanted to get him locked into an episode to explore his insights into the psychedelic sector and the ever-changing landscape, especially the areas of recent policy reform. Josh is the founder and editor of Psychedelic Alpha. So for those of you who don't know, it's a completely free web resource and newsletter with various data sets and trackers available on the website. He provides well-researched, informed updates, which I genuinely look forward to reading. Prior to this, Josh studies social sciences with focus on politics and social movements at the London School of Economics and UC Berkeley. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. Hey, hey, welcome. Great. <laughs> really looking forward to picking your brains. So I thought we could kick off with just a bit of the story behind Psychedelic Alpha, which used to be called Psilocybin Alpha, and why you decided to start the newsletter and re- resource. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll try and keep it quick, but the interest goes back quite a long way. So I grew up in Suffolk in the countryside, probably the least psychedelic place you could imagine, and started studying at LSE, which is quite, in my opinion, kind of quite a corporate focused university, at least when I was there. You know, most of my classmates ended up in consultancy and finance, but I had a real interest in social movements from like a sociological, anthropological perspective. So I ended up at UC Berkeley in my third year my advisor kind of encouraged me to go and get out of my system and go to Berkeley, which obviously is known for being quite liberal and obviously has roots in the hippie movement in the 60s. So I went out there and spent most of the year interviewing hippies, Black Panthers, mathematicians who are unwittingly involved in creating the atomic bomb. So all of these kind of interesting people who had been lost to the Tim Learys of history, right? You know, they hadn't been focused on because they weren't the celebrities of the 60s. So I think, you know, speaking to a lot of those groups, obviously I came across the kind of historical role of psychedelics and the counterculture and, you know, became interested in that sense. But it wasn't until I came back to the UK and started working in kind of social policy and economic policy that I came across this kind of biotech side of the psychedelic renaissance. So I had only seen the kind of indigenous hippie and raver kind of context of psychedelics. I hadn't seen this new kind of, you know, people who look more like me with, you know, glasses and, you know, looked a bit more square becoming interested in psychedelics. And to be honest, I mean, my initial reaction, this is in maybe 2019, 2020, my initial reaction was one of fear. I was kind of like, you know, we're going to medicalize or kind of, you know, big pharma is going to ruin the one thing we have left to enjoy and that we have left to kind of escape this kind of almost late stage capitalist system that we're in. So I I think at that time I was thinking about it, you know, very counterculturally and was, you know, very scared. But then the thing that actually got me interested and ironically led to me, you know, starting a website about 
investing in psychedelics and working for an investment fund, was thinking about you know the potential benefits of having a medical model of psychedelics as well, which is, in my opinion, the biggest benefit is reimbursement. So I was thinking back to you know where I grew up in Suffolk. I think most of the people I grew up with and my family would only ever consider a psychedelic therapy if it was recommended by their GP, you know, provided by the NHS, just for you know cultural reasons, but also cost reasons. So that's why I became interested. I started Psilocybin Alpha in 2020, very early 2020, and initially just it was a one-page website listing the companies involved in this and the research, and kind of started explaining to readers, you know took them on my journey of learning about how drug development worked, you know, what was the point of it, and very quickly realized, you know, this wasn't anything, you know, like cannabis that we'd seen before in terms of the commercial side. It wasn't kind of an economy of scale. It was really, you know, classic drug development with added hurdles, such as, you know, the pairing with therapy, the difficulty of securing patents. So, yeah, I just kind of began writing about all of these things and began meeting people like Graham Pachanek, who explained patents to me, my friend Michael Heiken, who explained drug development and pharmaceuticals. So, yeah, I've just been on this journey over the last three years and trying to share what I've learned with readers. And as you alluded to, that journey began really with focusing on psilocybin, but now has brought it to all psychedelics. You know, it quickly became apparent that psilocybin was just, you know, one molecule. And then, you know, the other thing to note is the word alpha was originally referring to investment, right? Alpha meaning returns above, you know, standard returns in the investment world. But, you know, quite quickly within, you know, a year, I tried to redefine that as, you know, not just a return on financial investment, but also the return on, you know, people who have invested their careers in this, you know, like you two who are working on the research side, people who have invested, you know, energy and, and risk, right? People have risked a lot. And then also thinking about those returns, not just economically, but societally and potentially, you know, pushing the boundaries on how we, you know, develop drugs, but also how we pay for them and how we recognize value in them. So I think I've really tried to broaden beyond psilocybin and beyond, you know, a financial understanding of return. So yeah, that's where we're at. And I think you did a great job of explaining, you know, what we try and do today, which is provide, you know, as much data and analysis as we can for free. Whilst also, you know, we have some small consultancy side to the business to, you know, keep ourselves solvent. But yeah, a big part of the mission is providing that information for free. Josh, it is, it is a phenomenal effort on your part. You know, it's incredible psychedelic alpha. There's so much information and it comes out. It's every week, isn't it? I mean, it was every week for a while. Now it's kind of gone fortnightly. And the reason, the reason is because someone actually emailed and said, I can tell that some weeks you're struggling for things to write about. So I didn't know whether that was a, a compliment or a you know, detraction. So I decided to just wait until there was enough to write about. But then you get these ridiculously long bulletins like we published the other week, which someone emailed me and said it took an hour for them to get through it all. So, think, <laughs> so yeah, we publish every couple of weeks. It must take a lot longer to prepare it, though. It's a huge commitment. Yeah, sometimes it feels like a huge commitment and other times it feels like, you know, a joy to be able to publish it and reach, you know, 20,000 people or whatever. I think it's exciting in that sense. Yeah. But yeah, it, sometimes it feels like a chore, but most of the time it, it feels like a joy. <laughs> and just how long do you spend reading on the different areas to contribute to that, to the bulletin? Yeah, I mean, I did a podcast with Greg and Matthias at Siam Adventures who had the Business Trip podcast. And I jokingly said, I spend, they said, how long a day do you spend reading? And I jokingly said, uh, seven hours and 36 minutes, you know, some fun, like 
comically specific number. But seriously, I think maybe six hours a day I spend reading. So the first thing I do in the morning, I have this scraper that shows me everything that's been published in the literature, but also, you know, in popular media. And I go through it and just like mark stuff that I want to read. And then I just skim it. You know, I don't have time to go deep into everything. But yeah, but I think that's why it is a joy really and a pleasure because, you know, folks like yourself are working, you know, deeply on specific topics and your subject matter experts in your specific fields, right? Whereas, you know, my job is really to kind of zoom out and try and hover above it all and understand all of it, which is, you know, a task, but also a joy to be able to just digest the work that true experts are doing. So, yeah, I mean, it takes a long time to read the information. In particular, it takes a long time for me to understand it. I don't have a science background, but yeah, so I spend maybe six hours a day just reading. Yeah. And do you get a lot of feedback? Are people give you really good, helpful feedback on it? Yeah, I mean, my f- we have a Slack channel that I use with Graham Pachanik and Michael and our friends there and my colleague Noah. And we, we discuss, you know, papers as they get published, every pattern that gets issued or published, we discuss. So, you know, you know, I gain a lot of my insights from this like hive mind and my friend Mario helps me understand psychopharmacology. So yeah, I really actually just rely on other people to help me understand things. And then in terms of reader feedback, in the early days, it was just kind of sending a newsletter out into the ether and never really hearing back. But then I was quite conscious to kind of tell readers, you know, if you enjoyed this, please reply. Or like, if you made it this far, reply. And I think anyone else out there who has a newsletter or who is like creating or publishing anything, I would really advise to do that. I mean, it's probably off topic for this podcast, but yeah, just remind your readers or listeners that they can reach out to you. You know, you're not this, it's not a one-way flow of information. And I think since I did that, it became a lot more interesting because you do get, you know, pushback and we've published, you know, some articles and investigations that have been a bit more kind of controversial. So it's caused some conversation. I think that's the most enjoyable part for me, that kind of like uh, Socratic like method, right, of, of debate and discussion. So, yeah. Well, Joe, we always encourage our listeners to reach out to us and suggest potential guests for um, future episodes as well and to get in touch and to see how they're enjoying our episodes or there's other areas they'd like to be explored further. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. It's so important to get feedback. So that's a good shout out to all our listeners to feedback if you do get Psychedelic Alpha and to feedback to us about the podcast. And so you can tell from your from the newsletter and from the the website just how broad your understanding is. You say you don't have a scientific understanding, but you bring in all your different perspectives, including obviously your experience at LSE and and Berkeley. Um, so really, now thinking about the psychedelic so-called industry and that sector, it'd be great to have a bit of a history um, on it and how you've seen it change. Obviously, that's reflected in the name change from psilocybin alpha to psychedelic alpha. But what are some of the other kind of key milestones you've, you've seen over the past couple of years, starting from that boom and before the boom? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, obviously the psychedelic renaissance was founded in, you know, research, right? In the, as early as the 90s, right? Like Rick Strassman's early DMT research and then some of, you know, Griffith's work on psilocybin with end-of-life patients. But, you know, I think now the psychedelic renaissance has become, you know, we think about it as stuff that's happened just in the past decade, right? Which has been largely characterized by commercial stuff. So, yeah, I think, you know, obviously MAPS now has MAPS PBC, which is a for-profit entity, but almost all of their drug development has been non-profit. But really, since I started writing about the space, it has been, you know, dominated the drug development by for-profits. So I think that's like a you know, really interesting shift in itself. And it also has implications for the type of work that gets funded. So, 
yeah, so since I started writing in 2020, most of the funding in the space has gone to drug development or sponsored research related to drug development. So the industry really, you know, you can think of this value chain that has all different sorts of things from, you know, manufacturing the, the API or the drug product itself through to the drug development and discovery, all the way through to clinics and care delivery. But really, the only thing that's been funded at the moment is drug development to a large extent. So I think, you know, that's interesting in itself. It says something about where we are. You know, we haven't got a single approved psychedelic yet. But all of this kind of exuberance and activity that emerged in 2020 with companies listing publicly, a lot of hype, you know, a lot of the pitch decks that I was looking at at the time when I worked for a VC fund in psychedelics, it was basically just, you know, very basic. It was saying, you know, we've discovered this new category of molecules, which we filed a patent on, you know, we're raising and we're going to go after any of these indications. So it was a very kind of basic approach, but because there was so much hype and money flowing into the space, from other sectors like, you know, crypto and cannabis, especially, there wasn't a great amount of like biotech bench strength on some of these funds, you know, they were kind of just investing on the hype. So yeah, I mean, it was incredibly frothy, you know, there was a couple of billion invested in 2020 and 2021. But then I think it became quite clear, both with the kind of like macroeconomic difficulties in the market and also in biotech. But I think it became quite clear that a lot of these companies, you know, were overvalued. So now in this past year, we've seen valuations of these public companies and private companies come crashing down as the realities of, as you two both know, the realities of, you know, identifying new drugs that are good clinical candidates, but also, you know, validating them in trials is a huge task, right? And an expensive task. So it's been a difficult last year for the companies in the space. It's been a bit of a reckoning. And yeah, now it's, you know, very difficult for companies to raise follow-on funding. So a lot of companies have gone out of business. But obviously, you know, there are some positive catalysts, hopefully in the future, like around the time that this podcast goes out, you know, MAPS, PBC's phase, second phase three of MDMA, assisted therapy for PTSD will hopefully be published. And, you know, we're hoping for some good data there. But I really think, you know, until there's evidence that payers like health insurers and, you know, national health systems are willing to pay for these therapies, you know, I think it is going to be difficult to attract, you know, larger institutional investment until that is proven out. I don't think it's necessarily approval that's the issue now. It's reimbursement. So, yeah, I mean, that's a messy way to chart the course of the industry. But, yeah, I think I think hype and then, you know, a bit of a bubble bursting is probably like the most high-level sketch of what's happened in the past few years. Yeah, it's been really interesting to follow it, hasn't it, Hannah? It's to see companies come and go. And the amount of money that's been invested is seems huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah, billions, which is phenomenal when you think of, yeah, groups, you know, like Rick at Maps who have been fundraising since, what, I mean, 1986 when it was founded. And then, you know, within a few years, the amount of money that's poured into the space has absolutely eclipsed, you know, 150 million or so that they've raised over the last 40 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's just been extraordinary. So in terms of, you know, regulatory approval, you see that coming as something relatively straightforward, but then the issues will be around reimbursement. Can you just explain to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. So if we just use the example of MDMA therapy, I guess, because it's, you know, potentially going to be the first to be approved next year, perhaps. So I think it's just, you know, a situation where compared to the standard of care, it's going to be very expensive, right? Because at the moment, the standard of care for most, you know, mental health or psychiatric disorders is obviously take home medications with some, you know, perhaps talk therapy. But obviously MDMA therapy, given there's going to be such a large 
therapy element, right? Like psychotherapy element with maybe, you know, 40 hours of therapy, you know, the basic math of just multiplying the hourly rate of a therapist in the US particularly, which is very high, which is good because, you know, therapists should be uh, remunerated well for their work, but it's a high rate. And then when you multiply that by the number of hours, you end up with kind of an immovable cost before you have, you know, the cost of the drug, which obviously MAPS PBC wants to have a markup on to recoup their costs and reinvest them in all of their amazing social projects. Even before you take into account that drug markup, you have this huge immovable cost of the therapy time. So it's looking about, you know, $10,000, $20,000 for MDMA therapy, which just blows out of the water, you know, anything like standard of care. And the issue that I see is the social costs of conditions like PTSD and depression, obviously enormous, right? Things like productivity, uh, isolation, and, and other things like that are the main costs of things like PTSD. But most healthcare assessors and insurance don't take into account societal costs. They only take into account direct healthcare costs. And actually, Joe, I think you, know, you co-authored something recently on, on psilocybin cost effectiveness. And I think a similar issue was found, right? Where in a healthcare perspective, it doesn't make sense. Whereas in a societal perspective, it does. So I think, you know, these are the bigger kind of campaign points or policy points that we should all be advocating for, right? For, you know, for example, NICE in the UK to be taking more of a social perspective of medicines and and benefits. So I think, you know, that's one thing, but I do think, you know, there are ways that, you know, this could be cost effective, you know, maybe it's better selecting patients, maybe it's things like group therapy. And I do think that, you know, in certain conditions, this will just be very obviously cost effective, but in terms of broadening out to, you know, depression, second line treatment of depression, it's just like a hard sell at the moment to insurance companies. So I think, you know, this is probably going to be the biggest issue. Obviously, sponsors like Maps and Compass, you know, are working very hard to to understand the cost basis and, you know, make that case to payers. But but yeah, everyone I speak to kind of in the payer landscape, you know, they're kind of balking at the price for now, at least. Yeah, so that's the, the two big questions in terms of scalability, the therapist time. I guess that's why you have different approaches. You have MAPS, which is quite heavy on the, the psychotherapy, and then you have COMPASS, where it's psychological support. And so some people argue that this is more to do with how these therapies are going to be scaled scaled up. But how do we get payers to take that more, more holistic approach to seeing the value of these medicines? Yeah, I think, you know, some of it is just advocating and, you know, putting psychedelics aside. And, you know, in a way, what MAPS have done, right, they've kind of put MDMA aside, MAPS, the nonprofit, and just tried to advocate for drug policy reform more broadly. I think on the commercial side, it's, you know, putting psychedelics aside and just advocating for the societal perspective more broadly. And maybe, you know, once that perspective is embraced, it's not just psychedelic therapies that might make sense. It's other pretty basic, obvious interventions, you know, that are in the social realm as opposed to like the pharmacological realm that would help with mental health. So I think these are just broader, you know, campaigning and policy points that I think we should all embrace. But I do think, you know, you mentioned MAPS and Compass having, you know, different kind of assisted therapy protocols or psychological support. I think there is something to be said on the molecule side, right? I mean, MDMA is a pathogen, so it encourages people to open up and that lends itself to talk therapy. Whereas I guess psilocybin, you wear the eye shade and you sort of go internally and introspect. So I think there's something to be said there. But I mean, it is obvious, you know, Compass, what they're trying to do here. I mean, and it's pretty uh, unsurprising and you can't blame them. I mean, they're trying to obviously demonstrate the pharmacological effect of COMP360, their psilocybin, as much as possible, right? Because FDA doesn't regulate therapy. It's just a lot cleaner if you can just demonstrate the drugs doing the work, the work and potentially, you know, psychological support, you know, the type of 
healthcare professional that can deliver that might look different to the sort of healthcare professional that can deliver MAPS's manualized therapy, which is incredibly broad and has a lot of latitude around what you can do in the session. So yeah, I think, you know, there's interesting things there. And obviously Compass has been, you know, very forthright in trying to say, you know, this isn't therapy, it is psychological support. They put out an opinion piece a couple of weeks ago and made a lot of fanfare about it, you know, saying we shouldn't even call it psychedelic therapy. It should just be called psychedelic treatment or psilocybin treatment. I think the other thing, you know, beyond trying to convince payers to think about things differently, the other thing is obviously to modify the intervention. So things like group therapy or, you know, as we're seeing at the moment, shorter trips, right? So things like DMT, 5-MEO, that's huge at the moment. And on the investment side, you know, shorter trips and so-called non-hallucinogenic psychedelics are basically the only subject of, you know, new investor interest at the moment because there is just this awareness that it is going to be a lot easier to integrate it into the existing model. And, you know, particularly with non-hallucinogenic psychedelics, there's nothing really disruptive about it at all, really. I mean, it's just a take-home medicine. And whether... Whether a non-hallucinogenic psychedelic, these so-called psychoplastogens could still benefit from being administered alongside talk therapy is yet to be proven. But all of the early trials, I mean, presumably are just going to use it as like a standalone pharmacotherapy. And then, you know, people like David Yade and then Ronan Griffiths have balked at this, right? And said, you know, the whole point is the experience, you know, like, and ethically, if we do prove that a psychoplastogen works, that's why I'm also an advocate for decrim and legalization, because Ethically, you could get to a situation where psychoplastogens are approved and then, you know, all of the kind of reform on the psych- true psychedelic side just shuts down because it's like, well, you don't, you the don't. government can say, well, you don't need a psychedelic, it's yeah. been proven. Yeah. So I think you need to carve out spaces for both. So, yeah. For sure, there will be patients possibly where a psychoplastogen is enough. But for many yeah. people, it's very hard to imagine that, you know, a non-psychedelic experience will be enough to help them to help them take and maybe in different conditions where these psychoplastogens could potentially help I'm focusing more on different types of conditions that aren't so psychiatric something else to kind of consider maybe to kind of not confuse the two as well thinking kind of in a more broader perspective for sure yeah i agree and i think if you have someone who has for example chronic pain like there might be benefit of having a macro dose right and yeah. you know, dealing with some of the like pain perception and like you know, the neuropsychiatric stuff, but also if you do have a psychoplastogen that reliably reduces systemic inflammation or something like, you know, you had Chuck on the podcast recently and, you know, Chuck Nichols and you know, his work on inflammation. And I know that's something you're interested in, Hannah, I mean, is like really exciting. And yeah, so I think, you know, this actually alludes to a broader kind of issue, you know, within the psychedelic space that we have at the moment, which is a lot of side taking and like a lot of kind of backing ourselves into corners over mechanisms of action and, you know, infighting, particularly maybe on the US side, I think there's a lot of big personalities in psychedelic research who are all kind of very fierce about, you know, their mechanism of action being correct and everyone else is being naive. And I think, I don't know, a bit of humility around, like none of us really know what's going on here yet. There's still so much to find out. (laughs) I definitely don't know. (laughs) But for the UK, we really must bring this in on the NHS, mustn't we? We don't want this to be private at all. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, Spravato is a good example, right? I yeah. think Spravato is technically covered in Scotland. I don't think there's much delivery, but down in England and Wales, you know, NICE has just repeatedly denied it. And, and I almost, you know, reading NICE's reviews of, 
you know, Spravato, they're almost kind of annoyed by the kind of arrogance, I think, almost of Johnson Johnson in saying, like, you know, we can repurpose the ECT suites or, you know, oh, you could do this. And then, you know, nicer kind of saying, well, we have our own plans for the ECT suites. You know, we have our own five-year plan for integrating primary care and community care. And Spravato doesn't seem to fit in that. So I think it's also just, you know, the drug sponsors, you know, psychedelic drug sponsors also just need to start that engagement earlier where they can with NHS and just think about, you know, how does this realistically look? And also just, you know, come in with a bit of like humility and be like, you know, we see that the NHS is in crisis. How can we help? And like, how can we co-develop new physical spaces to deliver this rather than trying to pick away at, you know, existing facilities? So yeah, I think it's going to be difficult, but, you know, I agree, Joe, like this has to be delivered on NHS, you know, if at all, because, you know, the average person with, you know, PTSD or depression doesn't have the funds to do this. I mean, you know, that's actually how these companies will survive is being able to have it scalable at the level of the NHS or at level of where it can be reimbursed in the States. Otherwise, there's not going to be the access that these drug companies need to be able to to get get their money back. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a key part of financial sustainability for companies as well. Yeah. But I mean, there is some hope, like, I mean, Spravato had a difficult start and I don't know, you know, I don't have much of an opinion on like the efficacy of Spravato. I don't have like a, you know, clinical opinion on it, obviously, but yeah, I mean, financially and like in terms of the sustainability of the product, like it's done a lot better recently. So it seems like, you know, it took a couple of years, perhaps COVID had a role in that as well, but it took a couple of years to get payers on board and like logistically to get everything on board with the REMS program. And then it kind of took off. So I think, yeah, that's another interesting thing for psychedelics. How long will it take for all of these logistics to get in place, for reimbursers to get their head around it? And, you know, when you think of maps, like they've admirably taken this anti-patent stance, right, where they haven't patented, um, well, at least Rick has, um, where they haven't patented MDMA. It would have been difficult to anyway. And they're relying on, you know, five or six years data exclusivity in the US. But, you know, it could take five years to get up to speed with you know being able to provide this or longer so i think you almost have this kind of uh almost tragic situation where all of the second movers all of these for profits that are kind of piggybacking on maps's work you know might end up having this big second mover advantage where by the time they come to market in 2027 you know maps's maps's uh, educated the the payers and you know educated the providers set up the networks of service delivery that then for-profit companies can come in and, and use and get up to speed with their delivery way quicker. So I think, you know, that would be a shame. And, you know, I think most people would, you know, hope to see maps recoup their costs, but I think they're going to be doing a lot of this legwork. So can we talk a little bit about the patenting issues? Because with a new chemical entity, it's really easy to see how those molecules can be patented. But patenting psilocybin, or as you were talking about with MDMA, Unless it's a new molecule or product, it's very hard to see how that will work. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, on this topic, you should definitely have, you know, someone like Matt Zorn or my friend Graham Pachanek on to talk about it in more detail because it is a fascinating topic. And it's one of those things that we've been writing about a lot of psychedelic alpha. But unfortunately, like IP, intellectual property is very boring and like very complicated. So it's it's hard to, (laughs) to get into. But yeah, essentially, you know, you can't obviously patent something that's known to nature, like a plant. So you can't patent, you know, anything to do with psilocybin mushrooms. Naturally, you know, there might be ways of patenting like genetically edited versions or biosynthetic roots to certain types of psilocybin products. But yeah, on the kind of synthetic drug development side, you can obviously patent a method of treatment 
So using psilocybin, for example, to treat a certain disorder. And you can also patent certain synthetic forms, obviously composition of matter patents. And that's, you know, the main kind of, well, the strongest strategy that Compass would have, Compass Pathways, which is, you know, patenting solid forms, so crystalline forms of psilocybin. They've obviously been issued patents on that, granted patents, and there have been challenges to those and they have been upheld. I think the controversy comes from the fact that obviously the whole point of a patent is, you know, you're granting a time-limited monopoly to commercialize something in exchange for that public disclosure, right? So you have to teach a member of the public or someone who's skilled in the art that you you know that your technology exists within you have to teach them how to do this you know enable it so basically after that patent term expires they could do it the issue with psychedelics is you know a lot of the things that we're seeing drug developers do today probably aren't innovative in the broad sense of the word you know they're not necessarily novel in the kind of layman term kind of layperson sense of the word in the sense that you know they're inspired by what originally indigenous people have done for thousands of years. And then more recently, all the mid-century, mid-century exploration by you know, LSD therapists and researchers, and obviously much more recently, all the clinical research. So unfortunately, because of the quirks of how the patent system works, in the sense that it only searches for published literature that are in very specific places like academic journals or in the patent literature, you know, when they go to search to see, you know, has anyone ever made a DMT vape which obviously, obviously they have, right? If you Google it, you can buy them on the dark web. Yeah. If, you, if you search in, you know, there, there isn't much in El Sevier about no. you know, DMT. There isn't much, about, you know what I mean? So, so that's the issue. Things have been granted that probably aren't novel or innovative. The problem is once something's granted a patent, it's incredibly difficult to challenge it. You know, it's very expensive. It could cost, you know, a million dollars just to kind of get a kind of post-grant review in, in the work. So you do rely on, you know, deep-pocketed people who perhaps, you know, have their own commercial incentive to challenge a patent, whereas the public and, you know, psychonauts and indigenous folks are kind of excluded from this whole process. I mean, so I think, you know, that's where the controversies come from. But obviously, as you said, you know, there are genuine, you know, there are genuine ways that patents have been used and they are obviously, like, obviously important to protect investment in research and development. But yeah, it's a fine line at that point. And we actually just published something last week about one company in particular who seems to have tried to patent yes, a, lot yes. of, a lot of work that other companies had already started doing. So yeah, that was a very interesting case. So yeah. I mean, Josh, do you want to tell us a bit about that case? That seemed to be fascinating to me. Is that legal? I guess it is. Yeah, so I, I think that company involved would you know argue that what they're doing is they're finding different salt forms of drug products that might be more viable in the drug development pathway. They're producing data on those salt forms that would enable them to be used in future as like a clinical candidate. So, you know, that's what they would argue. They would say they're saving time and money by producing this data and then someone could license it for them. But a lot of other people, you know, have expressed to us that, you know, this seems like they're basically keeping an eye very closely on what other companies are publishing, you know, in terms of their lead candidates. And then basically taking this very these very broad initial patent filings, provisional filings, and then as soon as they kind of see what other companies are working on, uh, they kind of hone it in, produce data on a salt of the of the lead compound or a prodrug of the company's lead compound, and and basically file on that. So I think a lot of people have looked at it and you know have emailed us to express concern about these types of strategies, and they're very common, you know, in the bigger kind of pharmaceutical space, you know. And, at their worst, they're described as, you know, patent trolls, people who file on things that they have no real intent to develop 
and then extract rents from them in the form of licenses from companies that do want to develop them. I mean, in the case of this particular company, you know, in our piece, we didn't make any like value judgment about their strategy, but it, you know, it does have, it is an interesting case and it's probably worth reading, especially in the sense that some of the things that they filed on were entirely novel psychedelics. So for example, Delix Therapeutics Tabernanthalog and their AAZ compound, which, you know, they designed and characterized and engineered at UC Davis. So it's not really feasible that you would just stumble across it. So yeah, it's an interesting case for sure. But yeah. So definitely a space to watch then and see how that develops. And it kind of leads on to thinking then really about sustainability and the sustainability of these type of patents being filed and how, you know, the considerations that we need to think of these in terms of research, how they might hinder, hinder research and development. I don't know, Josh, if you've had any kind of insights into what these could really do. Yeah, I think obviously, you know, even just psychologically as a researcher, I mean, you two would probably know more than me, but as a researcher, if you, you know, start working with a compound and then someone informs you that, oh, by the way, that, you know, that is protected by a patent, that might change your incentives to research it. Also, I think, you know, there's, you know, the patent system, especially in the US, is, you know, just one of these broader kind of regulatory contexts that psychedelic drug development is happening within. You know, there's other big policy systems and kind of conventions that might have similarly, you know, important implications for psychedelic research, like bifurcated scheduling, which is the situation where, you know, for example, when MDMA gets rescheduled in the US, if it's approved, it almost certainly won't be MDMA that you and I know and love. It will be an MDMA drug product that will have, you know, probably a name associated with it. And in the same way, you know, compass pathways will not be having psilocybin approved in the US, it will likely be COMP360. So I think, you know, even, and obviously, you know, those underlying drug products might have patents attached, but even if they don't, you know, just this fact that only drug products might be rescheduled has huge implications for research because it doesn't make it any easier to research psilocybin or MDMA. It just makes it easier to research that drug product. So that's a disaster. Well, it certainly doesn't help researchers (laughs) like us, does it, Hannah? No, I mean... (laughs) That was, in fact, adds more complication. Could you imagine trying to explain that to the Home Office, that you need to do research from psychedelics, which are under Schedule 1, but you can only access these drugs which are currently um, marketed? It would be an absolute nightmare. So is there any way around that? So actually, yeah, I think, you know, again, you know, Matt Zorn and Shane Pennington have a fantastic newsletter called On Drugs. So it's On Drugs and it's on Substack. And they write about these things, you know, these things that have almost become convention, particularly in the the US and, you know, have been exported to other parts of the world. But yeah, you know, bifurcated scheduling, which is what it's called, it isn't necessarily, from what I understand, it isn't a kind of given based on the statute. It's just become a convention. So in the case of GHB, you know, sodium oxybate, which was approved as Xyrem for narcolepsy, GHB remains, I think, Schedule 1, whereas Xyrem is maybe Schedule 3, 4, 5, I'm not sure. And in, in the UK, obviously, you have the example of, is it a Sativex, I think, which has THC and CBD in it, I think, but it's Schedule maybe 3 or 4 or 5, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but it's down-scheduled, whereas obviously cannabis and THC-containing products remain higher scheduled. So... You know, there's lots of precedent both in, well, not last, but there is a a few precedents in the US and UK to the point where we should probably, you know, expect that it's going to be the same here. And, you know, 
the practical implications of that are obviously most widely felt on the public who are going to you know, remain criminalized by using something that's approved for a therapeutic use. But also on the research side, you know, it does deepen that, that kind of monopoly, that time-limited monopoly around the sponsor, right? Because as a researcher, it, it will likely you know, be much easier to do an investigator-initiated trial for that sponsor than it will be trying to procure the, drug, the Schedule One substance yourself. So I think what we can do is, you know, we can, again, like, you know, campaign, whether you want to call it lobbying, you know, advocate for reform around how things are rescheduled when when drug products that contain the active ingredient are brought to market. You know, surely there should be some evidence-based rescheduling there. Absolutely. Absolutely. raises a really important point. I think, you know, if you have these drug studies, the differences in types of clinical trials you'd, be, you'd have to do for an investigation medicinal product or schedule one drug versus these authorised ones would be huge. And if you have a monopoly on the types of products used in the clinical trials, I think that would be a massive, you know, a massive hindrance for research. Um, so you kind of touched briefly on, on decrim. And I mean, it's an exciting lots of exciting change at the moment in terms of decriminalisation at the state level. I wonder if you could give us a bit of an update on the kind of current state of decriminalisation. Yeah, for sure. So I focus on the US because it's probably like the most interesting area at the moment in terms of the pace, speed. So I think in the US, you've had, you know, local decriminalisation in places like Denver and Oakland for, you know, half a decade now. But the state level is only really heated up in the last few years. Um, so obviously in Oregon, you have the first kind of regulated psilocybin system in the US where people can legally, as of you know, a couple of months ago, actually legally get psilocybin services, which are explicitly non-medical, but, you know, and they're not psilocybin therapy, but the protocols do look very similar to, you know, they're a lot more lightweight, but it does look very similar to, you know, medically facilitated psilocybin. So that's in Oregon. And at the same time as that, they uh, decriminalized possession. So it's all personal possession and use, and in some cases, you know, cultivation. But under decriminalization, any kind of commercial activity remains illegal generally. And, you know, sometimes what we call decriminalization is actually just making something the lowest law enforcement priority, which basically means if you're jaywalking in the US, so you're crossing the road whilst the man is red, if you're jaywalking and also, you know, scoffing some magic mushrooms, the policeman should technically, or the cop in the US should technically do you for jaywalking, not for scoffing down magic mushrooms. So that's basically what it means. It's like an effective decriminalization. So that's in Oregon. And then, you know, next year we're going to have Colorado doing something very similar to Oregon, having facilitated psilocybin services. And then down the line, they'll consider other psychedelics like Ibogaine, uh, DMT, etc. And again, they have this concomitant decriminalization of psychedelic use. So I think, you know, in terms of the biggest misconceptions, I think one is that decriminalization permits, you know, commercial activity, which it doesn't. So that remains very criminalized. And also, I think the other misconception is that these legalized models that we've seen at the moment are more accessible. Unfortunately, because of the way the licensing fees work in Oregon, for example, it still remains very expensive. So you're looking at around $3,500, which I think is like what £2,800 maybe, to have one psilocybin session. And you know, the average American, I think, has less than $3,000 in savings at any given time. So you know, it's still incredibly inaccessible. So this is, you know, hopefully in time, you know, Colorado looks like it will be a bit more liberal in terms of where psilocybin services can take place. Um, or natural medicine services, as they're called, can take place. But yeah, at the moment, it remains something that's very much in the remit of, you know, the wealthy kind of almost elite. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> it's not that much more. 
Well, yeah, it's very, very sad and, and worrying. So, Josh, what about Australia? I know a lots of our listeners will want to know what's going on there and and how this is is how it's looking financially, really. Yeah, I mean, luckily for you two, you have you know David and yeah. Science. So I think <laughs> he'll know more about this than I'll forget. But yeah, I think I was very surprised. You know, I think a lot of us that weren't that plugged in with what was happening on the ground were surprised with the rescheduling decision. I think the biggest you know concern is that it's kind of rescheduling a medicine and kind of providing a way for it to be delivered in the medical model in lieu of any reimbursement, right? So yeah, I'm hopeful that some nonprofit groups, you know, there's some already will, you know, come into that void and provide some, you know, funding for people to have these sessions. But I think, yeah, I can't imagine it being a big care delivery like model until there's reimbursement from insurers. I think I heard that there was one insurer that was thinking of doing like kind of like a real world trial almost to see whether it was cost effective. But yeah, I mean, what do you two think? Do you think it's going to be big or do you think they need to wait until there's an approved drug and like reimbursement until it becomes like a big, big option for patients? You know, I, I, we're sort of waiting to see what happens. I really don't know, but having talked to a few Australians that the worry is about the reimbursement and that it is going to be very expensive, you know, as you just talked about in, in some states. And I think it's critical that there's real world evidence collected right from the from the start. I think we need to have evidence collecting right away to try and get reimbursement. If we have if there's the evidence there, then hopefully that can try and persuade the, the, the payers. Yeah, and there's actually uh, exciting stuff going on in Australia in the ketamine space. So the George Institute just published, well, researchers from, I think it's the George Institute, maybe we got the name wrong, who just published a few weeks ago a comparison of, you know, bog standard racemic ketamine versus Prevate, which is like a, a really exciting trial that drug developer would never do, right? Because they don't want to prove that they're inferior potentially or, you know, equivalent to a standard generic product. But yeah, basically they, they compared yeah, generic ketamine to Spravato, and it was an early study, but it showed some sort of equivalence, right, Hannah? Yeah, and so this this opens up the question as well. Do you think more people might do that with psilocybin to show these kind of bioequivalent studies? It does raise that question, once the patents run out, or if there's some type of space to be able to work within the realms of that patent, could you just have all these bioequivalent studies coming left, right and centre for drugs which essentially produce the same effect? I mean, not if uh, the pharmaceutical lobby has anything to say about it. I mean, so this is, a, again, and I mean, we're getting all the bigger policy points that we need to really advocate for. And actually, Shayla Love, who's a you know, fantastic journalist and friend, she has written extensively about how, you know, outside of the conventional model of developing drugs that are patented and, you know, you have this time-limited monopoly, you know, there's many other ways, if we think more broadly, that we could prove that drugs are safe. And, you know, one of those is these kind of, pharmaco economo vigilance mm -hmm. or, or whatever they're called, you know, or no economic trials or something where, yeah, basically, you know, someone who has an incentive to reduce the cost of care, like a government, like the NHS, they sponsor these trials and they basically say, well, look, you know, we don't want to pay $800 per nasal spray for Spravato. So let's see if, you know, ketamine could even get us to 70% of the efficacy, in which case, you know, it might cost us $20 million to do the 20 million pounds to do this trial. But, you know, we, the NHS and the public at the end of the day, the payer, are going to benefit from the reduced costs. So I think it is just this broader thinking about the role of, you know, government and having an ambitious government role in funding research. I mean, you know, 
I was against Brexit, you know, staunchly. But, you know, after the fact, there was some hope that maybe we'd have this kind of post-Brexit spurt towards being innovative and like, you know, world leading on the biotech front. But, you know, now it's, I, I don't know, I, you two would know more than me, but it seems like we're just quickly becoming a rubber stamping authority that kind of rubber stamps other countries' innovation. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I would love to see the UK government funding some of this trials, basically. Josh, it's really frustrating because we have so much world-leading expertise in psychedelics in this country. We have a life sciences sector deal where government are reinvigorating life sciences. It seems to me that to be you know, a no-brainer that those come together. And we have some government support for this research in terms of enabling research, which I, I know Home Office are starting to do. But financially, you know, there have been... I think only one charity or, you know, research council UK funded trial into psychedelics. And that, that just seems like such a, a way, you know, missing, we're really missing out on a really important, could be so important for the UK. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's very frustrating for me that I, you know, I travel every two months to the US, right, to work with companies and research groups there and like try and incubate new projects. And actually recently have been, you know, speaking to some government agencies in the US about, you know, grant funding and helping connect them with grants in, you know, particular areas of research um, and also, you know, harm reduction. And, you know, there's quite a proactive approach among some of the US state agencies and, you know, National Institutes of Health in terms of funding this, but also, you know, preparing for the inevitable adverse events that are going to happen among the public. So I don't know, it just seems way more proactive. And then in the UK, you know, we're a much smaller country, you know, I can walk to Westminster from my flat and I don't hear anything, you know, it's like, <laughs> so I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just a different system of government. I mean, but to me, it just seems a bit disappointing for me that I haven't been as involved. I've been more involved in the US than in the UK, despite the fact that I live in London and have lived in. That's ridiculous, Josh. <laughs> you know, it's such a wasted opportunity, and you're producing this fantastic resource for all of us, and and not being supported, and then the research isn't being supported, and we don't feel. But anyway, yeah, we could we could go on. You're right, Joe. There is lots to be positive about in the UK. You know, there's great researchers. I also think. You know, ECNP and uh, Nice, you know, European College of Neuropsychopharmacology, that meeting that they did was fantastic. Like, in my opinion, I somehow managed to, you know, wear a straight jacket and a, and a fedora and sneak in there, like, as a, as a non-scientist. But it was, it was pretty, inc- a trench coat, not a straight jacket. But it was pretty incredible, I mean, to see all of these researchers who were, you know, experts primarily and advocates primarily for their individual field of research, right, whether it was pharmacology or, you know, clinical psychology or psychiatry, as opposed to what can often be seen in with our US colleagues, where somehow, you know, a lot of the psychedelic researchers are psychonauts themselves, or, you know, big psychedelic advocates. So I think, you know, in Europe and the UK, we have this advantage where a lot of the researchers are in it because of, and I know, Joe, I remember, you know, your personal story of how, you know, you became excited about psychedelics, you weren't some big psychonaut, right? You saw the data, and you were like, this is so compelling, I have to get involved. And I think that's, something that's really like special and kind of level-headed about us Brits. So, <laughs> yeah, Actually, in that context, we had the British Association for Psychopharmacology meeting last week and we had a packed out, Josh and Hannah, session on the clinical application of psychedelics and the, the year before the preclinical application. So what's just brilliant for me is seeing, seeing the 
people so experienced in drug development, people who've worked for J&J, worked for Big Pharma, worked for biotechs, have got 30 years experience in this field, coming in to work for pharma companies, you know, developing psychedelics and all the academics. And it is really about seeing the data, you know, understanding how, you know, sig significant and important the results are and how badly needed that we need a, a different approach to mental health, to neurology for so many patients who, who just don't respond. So, yeah, it's really, it is, there's so much positive. For sure. Yeah. And I think it's uh, important for me to regularly remind myself of that because I spend so much of my time trying to predict what the challenges are going to be, what could go wrong, you know, what are the difficulties in psychedelic research programs. So yeah, it is important to remember, you know, there's a reason why we all spend our days, you know, working on this because we're excited about it. So yeah, it's exciting. I like that optimism. And so an optimistic prediction then, rather than a pessimistic one, what would you say, Josh? An optimistic prediction in the next couple of years. What I'm really optimistic about MAPS is second phase three results. I mean, every indication we have is that they're confirmatory, statistically significant. So I'm hoping we're going to see similarly amazing data as in the first phase three. And also the second phase three is in a milder population. So people who don't have as severe PTSD, which will be, I think, you know, really interesting and like a really good hint at how broadly applicable it will be. And I think it's a more diverse population as well. That was something that was required, which is fantastic. And again, something that should be pushed for is more diversity in clinical trials. So that, that, that will be good to see in the results as well, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So I'm excited about that. I am also excited about these non-hallucinogenic psychedelics because I think, you know, from like a basic like nerdy and like you know furthering the and also you know this idea that you know chuck nichols you know explains well that you know basically we have this whole potential toolbox of molecules that have been overlooked because of prohibition and you know now you know lab like those of the nichols is able to now revisit them and think you know what might we have missed here that you know helps with inflammation or helps with ocular degeneration or whatever so i think you know i think that's just very exciting from like a pure like clinical possibilities point of view and I think you know we're going to start seeing some of that you know early trial data from companies like Delex soon you know the most fundamental question is are these drugs that appear non-hallucinogenic in rats are they non-hallucinogenic in humans yeah published, some, published something the other week about these people oh, in yes. online forums who have got hold of yeah they got hold of tavernantolog and they've taken them and they've had decidedly psychedelic experiences so whether it was a dose, dose issue or like, you know, whether it even was tabernantolog is to be determined. But so I think, you know, there'll be interesting questions there, but then, yeah, whether they're efficacious, right? Like if we see these molecules, you know, it could be a new class of, you know, psychiatric medicine. So I think, you know, that's interesting as well. And then just, you know, following these really exciting trial designs from, you know, groups like Boris Heifetz at Stanford and University of Wisconsin, you know, they have the one where they co-administer psilocybin with midazolam to prevent the memory being formed, you know, to try and understand whether, you know, the subjective experience is necessary, whether the memory of it is necessary. And yet Boris Heifetz, obviously, his group did that study where they gave people intraoperative ketamine, which I think is super interesting. And they, you know, they found that there was you know, no noticeable distinction from placebo, which again suggests that there's some expectancy effect with ketamine, or there needs to be the subjective experience. So I think exactly. You know, yeah. So I think as a non-scientist, I think all of these kind of clinical trial designs that are trying to get at 
bigger questions, you know, and, and these are the sorts of ones that often do need to be funded by philanthropy or, you know, yeah. NIH or ever in the US because there isn't a clear drug development outcome for that. You know, there isn't a clear commercializable opportunity, but it could have huge implications, not just for psychedelics, but beyond. And just lastly, you know, Nora Volkov and I think Josh Gordon from NIDA and NIMH, they just published this opinion piece on, you know, psychedelic research. You know, there was some pessimism and, you know, trying to temper the hype, but it was broadly optimistic. And at the end, they said, you know, the big promise of psychedelics is not just that, of psychedelic research is not just that we might find, you know, new treatments for mental health issues. It's also that, you know, we might learn more about the very nature of mental health issues, right, which could lead to, you know, other interventions. And that reminds me of, you know, obviously what Stan Groff said, which is, you know, the psychedelics could be for psychiatry. What I think it was the microscope was to biology. Some, some, something to that effect. And I thought it was funny that Volkov and uh, Gordon were almost echoing Groff. But I think this is true, right? And you two you know as researchers, we could learn a lot, right? About the yeah. Brain, mental health consciousness, and then also beyond neuroplasticity, uh, neurogenesis, um, even angiogenesis potentially, um, behavioral changes, um, so much we can learn. Yeah, absolutely. And when you hear people like Nora Volkov and Tom Insel, people who've got such a wealth of experience and have seen so many molecules come and go, when you see them uh, or hear them being so positive about psychedelics, that's eminently reassuring really is really important. For sure, yeah. Uh, we haven't got a lot of time left, Josh. I just wanted to ask about the microdosing industry and what's happening there and where you see that going. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a huge amount of interest in it because I think for me, it's kind of like, you know, more evidence is needed. And I think, you know, with things like macrodose psilocybin experiences or whatever, you know, it's like, I don't think there's much compelling evidence that there's any real safety risks outside of, you know, psychological safety. Like physiologically, it seems that like, you know, infrequent doses of psilocybin are not going to have any major issue, right? Hopefully. But with microdoses, I think, you know, the work of Kellen Thomas, the pharmacist, and uh, Brian Roth has written some about this. But I think, you know, there are, you know, people who are smarter than me have some concerns about chronic 5-HT2B agonism and, you know, valvular heart disease and thickening of the valve. So I think, you know, as a layperson, I defer to them. And, you know, until there is actual, you know, clinical trial data on chronic dosing or regular dosing of, you know, TB agonists like psilocybin, I think I'm kind of like very, like, almost worried about it. And I would like to see, you know, even outside of clinical data, some like longitudinal data about people who do microdose and, you know, their incidence of heart disease later on. So I think it's, you know, that's, I think the main reason I don't talk about it much outside of analyzing stuff like Balaj Sagetti's self-blinding trial, which is really interesting. And, you know, outside of talking about these studies, I try not to talk about it because I'm kind of, I don't want to be a scam monger, but I also don't want to like advocate for it until there is some definitive answer on the safety. So yeah, I, I, I'm worried about it. I'm hoping that it doesn't bear out to be a big issue, but I think it is concerning. And then I also just think it's kind of annoying. I think everyone who I mention, every, every time I meet someone and, you know, my girlfriend says, oh, you know, ask my boyfriend what he does or whatever. And I explain that I write about psychedelics. They're always like, oh yeah, like microdosing. Oh yeah, my friend, micro you know what I mean? So I always spend yeah. five minutes explaining that it's not microdosing. So I think I also just personally get annoyed with that. So. <laughs> I also just think there's a really funny potential situation. Well, not funny, but interesting potential situation where because FDA and their draft guidance were very concerned about 2B agonism and said that it needs to be tested for and everything. But I think you could have this funny situation where potentially 
the government or, you know, DEA in the US or, you know, FDA could say that you're only allowed to macrodose. You know, you're only allowed yes. to have a full dose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only six times or something. Yeah, but won't Pharma yeah. be doing these safety talk studies and won't they be looking at the heart? Yeah, if, if there's companies doing trials in microdosing, and there haven't been many so far, I think there's one down in Australia that Vince Polito's working with. I think it's called like Woke Pharmaceuticals or some name like that. And then there are some, you know, I think there's another one in Canada. And then, you know, maybe Gilgamesh were doing some low-dose stuff as well. So there are companies that had planned trials, but, I, you know, as far as I'm aware, there isn't any, you know, trial data on microdosing. All of the psychedelic trials that are published have been, you know, very infrequent, you know, one, two or three doses of, you know, a macro dose. There, there probably is some earlier stuff, but I don't think it's like controlled or like long-term follow-up. So, but yeah, I mean, if someone's going to commercialize it, then yeah, obviously they have they'll to. have to do all that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll know. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully, obviously, hopefully, like there isn't a safety risk, right? That would be tragic, but yeah, let's see. So then, Josh, just thinking about wrapping up, um, if there's any kind of last thoughts or um, any predictions to finish on? Well, predictions is, a, is always a, a fool's game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know people seem to think that you're able to see into the future. I know it's a question you're always asked. No, I mean, my predictions would be similar to things I've said earlier, right? Like good phase three data for maps, which I think will bring back some excitement to the field, especially public interest. and. You know, at the moment on this kind of hype cycle, I think the public is still on their way up. You know, like there's increasing amounts of reports of, you know, celebrities, you know, obviously Prince Harry, which I don't think did much for the UK scene, no. um, but I think for the US, you know, brought a lot of attention. So yeah, I think MAPS is phase three data, if it's good, will bring a huge amount of attention to the space. But I think on the kind of investment and funding side, I think, as I said, like we will need to wait to see, you know, commercial success until that really comes roaring back. And then, yeah, I guess my bigger prediction is, just that, you know, on this drug policy reform side, that things continue to be very quick in the US in particular, but also controversial. You know, there's a lot of kind of power struggles between grassroots movements in these different states. And then, you know, these kind of out-of-state, more coordinated actors that are trying to kind of templatize what happened in Oregon and Colorado, which I think is probably a expedient way of doing it and a, like a well-funded way of doing it. But obviously, you know, there are people on the ground who have been doing harm reduction and campaigning for a long time that do feel kind of threatened by this influx of new money that's going towards drug policy reform. So I think, you know, both on the like drug development side and the medical side and in this kind of decrim and legalization side, there is going to be, you know, a lot of tension in the next couple of years. I think, you know, my bigger hope is that from the more like political side is that all of this, you know, works to kind of reframe drug use as a, you know, healthcare issue as opposed to, or a healthcare topic, not even an issue, as opposed to a kind of criminal issue. And I do think, you know, luckily we are hopefully starting to see the dominoes falling in terms of the war on drugs in the US. So, you know, I think I hope to see psychedelic policy reform situate itself within broader policy reform because psychedelics are, you know, very white still, right? They're very white middle-class drugs. So, I hope to see other drugs, you know, given the same treatment as psychedelics soon. So, yeah. And in terms of like, you know, things, if I have like the soapbox now, I think the other thing I would say is, you know, all these things we're talking about in terms of potential policy solutions or, you know, campaigning. I think, you know, I would love for people to get in touch with me if they're listening and they have a good idea that, you know, we could take to governments or regulators. You know, it could be like a startup idea about, you know, how to build some part of the infrastructure that's going to be needed to roll out psychedelic therapy. But it could also just be a policy idea, right? You know, 
I'm all ears and like would happily, you know, work with groups like, you know, the drug science, psychedelic medicine working group, for example. Um, but yeah, I think there is a need now for an influx of, you know, new ideas and new ways of thinking about this that kind of match the, the psychedelic spirit, right, of doing things differently, thinking differently. So I think we need to apply that inventiveness and thinking outside the box to policy and advocacy and funding. And so, yeah, I think get in touch if you have any ideas. How do people get in touch? I think you're right. I think lots of people, lots of reformers have the just do it attitude, which is what you had with the Psychedelic Alpha website. So how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you on Twitter? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the best way to get in touch is email, probably because I don't, I'm not very good at checking my DMs, especially now that Twitter has gone all X or whatever it is. I don't, I'm trying to like minimize use, but josh at psychedelicalpha.com is my email. And also, I think, you know, if there's people listening that, you know, already in an established career or early career and thinking about, you know, moving into the psychedelic space, there is this big need as we move towards, you know, proper formal, you know, medical model use of psychedelics. There is a need for, you know, subject matter experts that aren't necessarily just, you know, psychonauts and, and passionate, but do have deep domain expertise. So, you know, we have a job board at jobs.psychedelicalpha.com, which, I think we're like one of the only you know, groups maintaining it. So like do join that job board, sign up for alerts. And when you sign up, you can fill in your profile. So, you know, even if there's nothing available at the moment, maybe in a month or a year or two years time, there might be a real need for someone like you to make this successful, whether it's on the policy or on the kind of drug development side. So I think that would be my biggest push, like get yourself in that talent network and then hopefully together we can make it work. Yeah. That's great, Josh, because there are quite a lot of people, I think, Hannah, looking to move into this field. And coming in with much more kind of a ba- what they consider to be more of a basic skill set within a specific niche. And maybe they don't realise yet just how they can apply that within the psychedelic context. So I think that's a fantastic call out. You know, we've got lots of people listening who are students, early career researchers, clinicians of all different sorts. So definitely worth checking out the job board. My last piece of advice, and I actually need to heed my own advice more, is to go to in-person events and especially yes. drug science events. You know, there's <laughs> communities of people that are interested oh. in psychedelics. So I think, yeah, listen to the podcast. Go to the drug oh, science thank event. Thank you. Yeah. And that's how we met. We met at an in-person event. The three of us, in fact. The three of us met for the first time at an in-person event. And so it's nice to kind of bring it back together, bring it back online. And I know I completely agree. I really missed in-person events during COVID and, you know, the past couple of years now. It has been fantastic just to get back out there. I think in-person interaction is crucial. Thank you so much, Josh. I'm so glad we managed to get you on the podcast and that we've got Joe on here as well for the episode. It's been so good to speak to you and to get your wealth of knowledge. And just a reminder to everyone to check out Psychedelic Alpha and just see what an amazing resource it is. We will put all a few of the things we talked about today into the show notes. We'll put the economic analysis, which has been published. Yes. And yes, do read Psychedelic Alpha, folks. It's such a wealth of information. It's absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. 